You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. I'm here in the studio of Gangland Wire. You know, with this uh, coronavirus thing going on, I'm I'm sitting here. I'm doing a whole lot of interviews. I've got uh, three all together today, and next week I'll just stay inside and, and edit all those interviews. And I have on the line a, an old friend of mine, uh, Lee Flossie. He was a, he's a retired FBI agent. He was assigned to the Kansas City office during the uh, skimming investigation, and uh, he was really instrumental he, in that investigation. He worked closely with uh, a man that you've all heard from several times, uh, retired agent Bill Owsley. And I just want to report that he's doing okay out there. And, and uh, so far, we're, we're struggling through. Like, uh, I know you guys, by the time you get this, you'll already be through this thing. Uh, so, uh, you know, we just we hope for the best right now. Lee, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be with you, Gary. Okay, now you uh, you up there sheltering in place uh, in Chicago too? I understand. Absolutely, yes. Out of my pajamas, but generally uh, that's the state. Now I stay in my pajamas uh, through the morning because uh, it's it's more comfortable than sitting on a cold and dry. Really, really. I'll have to admit, I haven't I haven't got out of my pajamas today. I don't mind this. Uh, spend more quality time with my wife. And there you go, Lee. Tell the wiretappers out there a little bit about your career and, and how you ended up being an FBI agent. Well, that uh, could take quite a while, but let me give you the, the short version. I was born in Italy during the Second World War, and in 1949, after the war was completed, my family, my mom and dad and the siblings, uh, immigrated to the United States. We settled in Chicago where we had family, uh, aunts and uncles, uh, who uh, uh, helped us uh, settle in. I went to school in Chicago, grade school, high school, graduated from Deep Ball University uh, and uh, Deep Ball University Law School. And after graduating from law school, I was fortunate enough to get a position with the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. It was a good job for a guy just out of law school and, and uh, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't long before I realized the nickname Crook County uh, uh, was really a, a factual situation. It wasn't the best place to work, and I decided to leave. I applied with, with the FBI and was hired as a special agent uh, in 1960, uh, let me see, 1966, I believe, uh, and uh, went to uh, Quantico, three months of training, after which I was assigned to my first office in uh, the FBI. Uh, at that time, they didn't send us to the bigger metropolitan offices, but rather to uh, medium-sized offices, small offices, and I was assigned to Albany, New York, that I was an Italian speaker, uh, they had me programmed to go to New York City and, and work organized crime there and use my Italian, Italian language ability to uh, uh, pro- progress in that program. Well, <clears throat> about a year after I was in Albany, I was prized with a transfer to Kansas City of all places. It turns out that Ralph Cipriani, another agent, Italian-speaking agent that had been in Kansas City, got his office of preference transfer to New York, and I took his place in Kansas City. So I was in Kansas City for 13 years. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be assigned uh, as the partner, uh, Bill Owsley, that you you know very well, and we worked together for a good 13 years. Uh, We were partners for a a good long time, and Bill taught me a lot of things, we enjoyed our time together, uh, fighting the mob in Kansas City during that time. 
Yeah, boy, you guys did, uh, folks. These these guys were the 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 mob busters of Kansas City, and and they worked pretty closely with the intelligence unit. Uh, you know, Bill figured out when he first got to town, he was uh, he was early on in this uh, the FBI going after the mob, and there wasn't a lot of intelligence uh, gathered and in past by past years uh, by uh, FBI agents, and and he, I think maybe even the start of the top hoodlum squad. I'm not sure he was early on in that, and. And uh, so he came over the intelligence unit and found the the local guys. Uh, did he bring you over to the unit? I can't remember exactly. Uh, I came in in '76, so you'd already been there for a while. Oh, yes, he did. I, I, we worked very closely with the intelligence unit. They were really partners in much of what we did, uh, and they could do things that we couldn't do. And it was just great to have that kind of relationship. Yeah, you know uh, Ray Kenny. Do you remember Ray Kenny? Yeah, he was he was he was my mentor when I came in. I learned everything I ever wanted to know about the mob and how to work the mob from from Ray Kenny. He he died about oh I want to say four or five years ago. I hated to see Ray die. I went down to his funeral. He retired and moved down to to the country down by a, a lake, Stockton Lake, and uh, met a lot of his family that he talked about over the years. But he was a good guy. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear about his demise, but he's a good guy. Really. Him and his old partner Jimmy Doolin. Let's talk a little bit about your work in Kansas City with with Bill Owsley. Uh, I know that uh, you guys would have gone down to the city market and and seen Nick and Cork Savella, our uh, our mob boss and his brother. You had some personal interactions with him every once in a while. I, I understand, if I remember right, uh, Nick didn't really like you. No, Nick uh, didn't like to be followed. <laughs> yeah, didn't like being investigated. But- he considered himself to be some sort of a royalty guy. You know, he was above the. Uh, he, he deserved to be treated differently, with much more respect than the, just the normal street guys were. And of course, uh, we weren't about to do that for him. We didn't count out to him at all. Uh, I was not a smoker at the time, but this is sort of an anecdotal thing. Bill Housley and I bought some really big cigars, long cigars. They, they weren't very expensive; they were really cheap cigars. But yeah. We saved those for whenever we had contact with the Nick Savella or, or Carl or, or, or Tony Wright. Uh, and we would then light up the cigar, and during our contact with it, we'd blow smoke in their faces. <laughs> and we took pride in the fact that we had bigger cigars than they did. <laughs> now, I, I'm curious, uh, did you do that to Cork, too? Boy, Cork might have popped off on you. He was, he was pretty volatile. Yeah, Cork on occasion was there. He was uh, very prone to fly off the handle. Uh, he gave us a, a, a tongue lashing one day when we were uh, sitting in front of his uh, meat market uh, establishment uh, and looking for some some information. And, and he came running out and tried to get us to shoot and get away from there. Uh, typical Cork Savella reaction. There's a film clip out there of, of Cork being interviewed. The news people went down to the market and interviewed him one day, and he's going, yeah, they follow you around, they come down to the market, and they look at you, and they write down your license number, and you follow you here, and they follow you there. And, you know, they're part of some kind of task force over there. I don't know. They think they're some kind of mob or something. You know, they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> he was a character. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of bluster. Yeah. Do you, do you remember the story? Were you there at the time when, when he was in a, it's probably before your time, it's way before my time, it's probably in the early 60s. He was in a, there was some kind of a grand jury going in Jackson County, or it might have been Clay, probably Clay County. And they were calling these guys into a grand jury, and there's a bunch of photographers and, and reporters there. And, 
and they were like looking at him. Somebody popped some pictures of him, and he was waiting to go in the grand jury. And he turned and and he exposed himself to him. <laughs> That that would be something he would do, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> he was, well, yeah, exactly. He was a piece of work. I got a guy though tell me about. He was a young guy dating a girl, and he was from the North End, and and they're sitting in a restaurant, and Court comes in. They're like in their I don't know thirties, I think, late twenties, early thirties, and Court comes in, just sits down at the table, and he starts engaging this girl in conversation. And he, this guy said, you know, he said, hey, he said, uh, what are you doing? He said, you know, I'm here with her. He said, Cork turned and looked, Cork turned and looked at him and said, do you know who I am? And they just turned back and started talking to her. And he knew who he was. So uh, finally he got up and left. And this guy kind of breathed a sigh of relief. But he was that kind of guy, man. Oh, yeah. He, he, he trafficked on the reputation of the mob. He, he enjoyed uh, letting people understand that he was a mobster and uh, you yeah, it was. Uh, he was a piece of work. Nick was. Nick was a lot. Uh, I shouldn't say smoother, but but he he didn't get out there and get in people's faces and, and kept a lot lower profile. You know, he never went in the joints at night. Cork was out in the joints at night. We never saw Nick oh, out yeah. uh, in the joints yeah, Nick, at night. Nick was one of the family man. He was out at night, but probably at, 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 at Fifth and Coosters and the yeah. club playing cards and stuff. Never hit the bars. Never hit the bars. Yeah, I guess you spend a little bit of time driving up and down Fifth Street and seeing, writing down license numbers like we did. Oh, absolutely. Spent plenty of time. Uh, I spent the cruise study. Spent a little time inside the social club and the restaurant next door uh, when they went that building, as you know. Yeah. And during the course of our investigations, we had to uh, make an entry in those locations and put drugs in there. I was the technical guy, so I, I, I just had to go in and do the wiring and stuff get, get, it, get it working. Oh, I didn't realize that you you were one of the black bag guys that went in and did that. I, I know we, we yeah. some of the guys helped with that a little bit. Uh, go out and cruise around, be co- close by with a, a marked car just in case some something happened. You could jump in and and hit anybody yeah. off. But uh, yeah. absolutely, I you know as you know I grew up in Chicago and uh, I, I didn't and I had a liberal arts education. Didn't know anything about electronics and things like that. But the bureau kept me back to Quantico for uh, three months to learn the techniques of wiretapping and bugging and uh, how to climb the telephone pole and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and then they just set me loose to Kansas City. Huh, yeah. I forget the first time I had to climb the telephone pole. It was the <laughs> longest, tallest telephone pole I had ever seen. And they didn't have all these steps. Yeah. I had to use spikes. Oh, man, you must have been in good uh, shape. Well, by the time I got to the top, my knees were shaking, my legs were shaking, and I thought I was going to fall, and I looked down, and there's a, a chain link fence. Oh. It's about six inches from the ball. I said, I'm going to fall, get that fence, and I'm going to be split in two. Really? Man. So, but, you know, over time, you get used to it, uh, we got the job done. <laughs> You you weren't the guy that was uh, up on a telephone pole out behind the Villa Capri when uh, Rossi Strada walked out the back door and started walking around. <laughs> Somebody else was up underneath oh. Tuffy's car, and, and another guy was was up at the plant, and uh, uh, he was talking on the radio, and he didn't see what was going on, and the guy on the pole could, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, that wasn't me. That okay. Wasn't me. 
<laughs> you know, things like that happen, don't they? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. They're prone to get excited when they see something. They immediately suspect the worst. You know? Yeah. It's just a, a, a legitimate telephone. <laughs> right. I bet a lot of them have been confronted over the years. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nixon Miller had a habit of stopping people that, he thought he stopped me once or twice actually when I was surveilling him. Yeah. He pulled over and came up behind me and started shaking his fist and stopped following me. <laughs> so I can imagine how many sales that he stopped. Really? Because we had cars that looked just like everybody else's cars. <laughs> yeah. Cars. <laughs> well, that was that was a lot of fun chasing those guys around. Uh, I wouldn't trade those times for for anything, man. No, good memories. So you you worked here until uh, you were all an integral part of that skimming operation and and of course uh, uh, all those wiretaps you guys had to listen to those and then formulate your plans for where to go next and and spun out to Las Vegas. Bill ended up being the case agent on it. He was boy, I tell you, Hud, he and Gary Hart, man, they uh, they did a hell of a job and they <laughs> they had to put in the time. It was whoo, that was a lot of work. It was an amazing case. During the, the, that case, the, the score that case and everything leading up to it, uh, it started easy, uh, very small as a, a gambling case and one of the bookmakers in town, but soon expanded into the, the major case that it became. And during the course of that, Jerry, we put in over 40 wiretaps and bugs. Wow. Uh, and, 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 you know, that I was doing uh, all of those, except in a few where I had to get help from the uh, from Washington to come out because the entry was kind of difficult. But anyway, uh, that was a busy, busy, busy time. Collected a lot of great evidence. And, uh, that's when we heard that famous conversation between Tuffy, I think, and Charlie Bartina about the sandwiches from Las Vegas. Did you bring me those sandwiches from Las Vegas? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and and well, who the heck goes to Las Vegas to bring sandwiches back, you know? Yeah. So we, we realized that there was, there was something else afoot. Uh, and that the sandwiches were really the skim from Las Vegas, and that opened up the case for, for the major case for the PK. Yeah, it it was something. Uh, the funny, the funniest one was uh, Joe Augusto and Tuffy trying to get the airplane code straight. Do you remember that one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that was hilarious. <laughs> I remember they got to United, and Tuffy said, "Well, you." What the fuck's a good you? You know, Mr. Uh, 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 Mr. Unger. Okay, if Mr. Unger comes, then you'll know that that's United. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was, that was a good one. And I love Joe Augusto's accent on that. He was <laughs> he was kind of a character. <laughs> it was a wonderful uh, period of time. Lots of great work. And uh, hinted it for me to come to a head. I, I, as you know, I was, I was uh, given an opportunity to to transfer to uh, back to Italy. Yeah. The FBI legal attaché. I left there about the, the late 1979, early 1980. And uh, I think one of the reasons they sent me is because of the organized crime express I had. So it was, it was a good move. Yeah, I, I think if if I remember right, you uh, you probably I think you mentioned one other time we were talking about this that you had to usually you came out of Washington after the like like you'd been a street agent and going straight to being uh, a legal attaché or working in one of those offices that was kind of unusual. Oh, very unusual. I, I, in fact, I don't think it had ever been done before that someone would be transferred as a street agent directly to a supervisory position abroad, they, they like to have you come back to headquarters and anoint you, you know, to make sure you're okay, that you're not embarrassed. 
uh, the Bureau, the State Department, the, and the Justice Department, and the country by some crazy shenanigans. So they, uh, for some reason, they, they took a risk with me and, and, and sent me over, and it was uh, a wonderful experience. Maybe it was because you had all that experience with organized crime, plus you spoke Italian. Well, yeah, the two things. I, I had 13 years of experience uh, investigating organized crime with successful cases like Stormat. And I was an Italian speaker, a native Italian speaker, so they, they were happy to have have me over there. So when you got over there, did you, uh, uh, I mean, you know, that's one thing you were going to look at. You had all this experience. Did you start developing relationships with uh, local cops like you, you did here in Kansas City? Absolutely. Well, that was, you know, I, I felt that I was being sent over there for a reason, and my, in my heart of hearts, but the reason was that I was going to bring the organized crime program to a new level, a better level of cooperation between Italy and the United States, because we were investigating organized crime that had its origins in Italy and we never had any input from Italy. Hmm. Uh, so shortly after I got there, I, I investigated or uh, inquired from all sources that I could who was the foremost expert in Italy on organized crime. Uh, and the, the, the name of Giovanni Falcone kept, kept coming up. Giovanni Falcone was not a police officer. He was an investigating magistrate. Sort of uh, a different position that we don't have in our legal system, but Investigating magistrates are judges who run what we would have here as grand juries all the time. That's what they do. They investigate via their judicial power various uh, uh, illegal activities. Uh, and he was in Palermo, of course, the the, uh, the center of uh, the, the mafia's very mafia's organization. Uh, so I, I called Judge Falcone. I'm not sure how long it was after I got there, but, uh, you know, a while. Uh, and uh, made an appointment to go down and see him, and, and we got acquainted. And over time, we became very close, and we found out pretty quickly that he could trust me, and, and uh, we shared information and, and had some you know, minor successes, discussed the possibility of forming a, a different kind of relationship with him uh, and uh, uh, just the uh, uh, magistrates in Sicily. And we formed the Italian-American Working Group to combat organized crime. This was a big, big step forward. The Italian Minister of Interior, Mr. Scalfaro, uh, head of it in Italy, the states, it was the Attorney General Ed Meese and the FBI Director and other law enforcement officials, and then police officials as well. And we, we would meet twice a year, once in, in, in Rome and once in Washington. Uh, and these uh, officials from both sides would gather and discuss strategies. Initially, the first uh, year or so, it was a question of being able to modify the relationship so that we could share information without the usual red tape that was involved. So over time, it became very, very successful, uh, resulting in, in the pizza connection case in, in, in the States and the, the Maxi trials in, in Italy. Uh, against organized crime. You know, I was reading in this book, uh, Last Days of the Sicilians, by this Ralph Blumenthal, that Judge Falcone had once mentioned that he really liked coming over to the United States because he could kind of relax a little bit compared to when he was over in, in Sicily. Yeah, we, I brought him back uh, along with some other people, in addition to the visit to Washington. Uh, I brought him back to Chicago uh, along with one of his lieutenants and uh, a couple of police officers. Uh, for a case, and he just loved to get away from Sicily. When he was in Italy, he had to have bodyguards with him all the time. He couldn't go anywhere 
put out at least a half dozen bodyguards around. He would go uh, at the beach in, in Palermo and uh, he, with his family, his wife and, and family, and the bodyguards would be in a rowboat because he's in the water uh, around it. I mean, it, it was that kind of a life, so he was a, he was really happy to be able to get away and, and be a free man when he came to the States. Yeah, I'll bet. Well, that uh, it was particularly dangerous, as as he found out uh, in the end, the hard way. Uh, tell us a little bit about what happened. Judge, I, I, I was in Rome for with the legal attaché's office uh, for the 80s, from 1980 to 1989. Uh, then I got transferred back to headquarters and, and, and supervised the uh, international drug trafficking unit. Uh, and but the relationship with the Italian-American Working Group it continued and, and had a lot of success, as you know. Uh, Judge Falcone uh, became a, a dreaded enemy of organized crime. They hated him with a passion, with a passion uh, and, and uh, plotted to, to kill him, uh, as well as other uh, Italian police and judicial officials. In... in uh, in 1992, I believe it, I recall, my recollection is right, in May of 1992, uh, while Judge Falcone and his wife were traveling from uh, Palermo to the airport in Pucaraisi, uh about 20 miles from, from town, uh, on the expressway, and he had a car uh, of protection in front of him and another car following him with police officers. And when they got to a certain place uh, between the airport and Palermo, a bomb exploded, uh, and uh, probably a ton of dynamite was used because it, it left a crater the size of a football field, destroyed that expressway, uh, and he was killed along with two of his bodyguards and the boy. How did they get him set up like that? Well, they had a, a car following him uh, with, uh, with uh, you know, uh, two-way radios, and they had a couple of guys, and then later, during the investigation, we discovered that they were set up on a hilltop overlooking the expressway. Uh, we found boxes of cigarettes, lots of cigarettes, and, and packs of cigarettes. They were there for quite a while over time. Uh, and when they got to see his uh, entourage approaching with the three cars, when he got to the, the, the perfect place, they detonated the bomb and, and up the roads. Was was that ever solved? Was we ever able to solve that? Yeah, yeah, they've arrested some people, but that, never, never anything definitive. Hmm. But the mob at that time, Gary, you have to understand how they were so devoted to destroying the government's efforts to thwart their business activities. They were losing money big time because of uh, the investigation. And over a, a five month period, they killed two ranking police officials. And two judges. Uh, in January of 1992, they, they killed Salvatore Arusa, just on the other side of Catania. And then Judge Falcone was, was murdered on the, on, uh, at the end of May, so May 23rd or so. Uh, just a, a few weeks later, Judge Falcone's predecessor, uh, Paolo Borsellino, was killed along five of his bodyguards. Wow. Uh, another file. Four times after that, another uh, police officer, police inspector, uh, Giovanni Lizzo, he was driving home from work in two motorcycles with two passengers on the motorcycles, approached his car, 
and at a traffic light, they just started firing at him and killed him. He got on the way to the hospital, actually. But that that was never solved. So in a five-month period, they killed these four people, the principal targets, plus their bodyguards. It was an all-out war. It was. It was an all-out war. It truly was. Back here in the United States, there's, uh, you know, I'm doing this as part of a series on this pizza connection, which uh, went back into Sicily and, and through Sicily to get the, the heroin in. Tell us a little bit, how, how did you become aware of that? And this one particular agent, did you know him, Carmine Russo? I was reading again in this book, Last Days of the Sicilians, and and. Carmine Russo, he, he reminded me of guys like you and and Bill Owsley. He he was uh, he was a go getter. He had a good work ethic and started that thing out and put it together. And how did you become aware of that? Did you get involved in that a little bit? Well, while while we were involved, I was of course communicating and, and talking directly with agents in the states, exchanging information, especially with the uh, offices in New York and Philadelphia and New Jersey, where we're the bulk of the East Coast organized crime activity was taking place, especially the peak connection parts of that case were being taken place in that part of the country. And Carmine was an agent in New York City. Uh, like me, he was a native Italian born in Italy, uh, but he was born in Sicily. He spoke Sicilian. I spoke Italian, not Sicilian. And so, believe it or not, it's, it's a, a different language. You, if you don't speak Sicilian and you're born in Italy, you're not going to understand the Sicilian. And Carmen had a, a, a great reputation as an effective FBI agent. Uh, and we had exchanged uh, information with them from all on these cases, the travels back and forth to some of the individuals we were following. Eventually, we got Carmine transferred to Rome. And by that time, I was the, I was the legal attaché, no longer an assistant. And he became one of my assistants. And uh, uh, he was... I put him in charge of the Sicilian Mafia cases, and he did a marvelous job uh, for the remainder of the time that I was there. Tell us a little bit about that uh, Pizza Connection case from from the Sicilian end. Uh, how were they uh, importing their heroin over to the United States? And, and uh, talk a little bit about that uh, Gaetano bottle of mente. Well, in short, the, the Pizza Connection case became on reality because the drug enforcement agency had successfully uh, downed uh, and killed the French connection. I mean, they, they put them out of business. So now, Sicilian Marcia realized, hey, you know, uh, especially the young young blood in the Sicilian market saw this as an opportunity to make some big money if they would take the place of the French connection and distribute drugs into the United States so there's a big market for them. Delicious heroin. So they, they brought over some of the uh, chemists uh, and established laboratories in, in Palermo uh, and were importing the raw products from, from Afghanistan and other locations in the, the Far East uh, and processing heroin. They sent many of their own of their own Sicilian mafia members throughout the United States, especially the East Coast uh, and the Midwest, set up pizzerias and be in a position to distribute the heroin to their uh, cohorts who were selling it to American citizens and, and through their contacts that they had. That went on uh, over time, uh, over a period of uh, five or six years after the demise of the French connection, the Sicilian mafia became a big player in illicit drugs. The problem for them was the American mafia, the LCM, the La Cosa Nostra, they weren't involved in drug trafficking. There may have been a, a, a few here and there making a little money at it, but it, that was not the primary source of income. 
we were uh, a lot of other things, but not not the not drug trafficking, because they were concerned about their political contacts that they depended upon. They didn't want to have the bad publicity that came with drug trafficking, and so they kept care of it. So they virtually had to establish their own uh, infrastructure in the states. That's why they sent people over there from Sicily, open up these pizzerias, and, and, and be vantage points for uh, the importation of the. The what I've read is, again, this Gaetano Balamente, he had been a, a mob boss and then was on the outs. The, this other, uh, Salvatore Reina had, had kind of beaten him in a way, and he was down in South America, but he helped set that up. And he sent a bunch of his relatives uh, open up pizza places uh, in Illinois, as far west as Illinois, just outside of Chicago was the farthest north one, I see, but it was outside of it on down through and, and other places in in the Midwest, were they bringing the heroin in? Was he orchestrating that and bringing that heroin in through the, uh, uh, you know, like hiding it in um, tomato sauce and pizza dough and that kind of thing? Oh, yeah. They were very inventive uh, on, on ways to bring in the heroin. I mean, they wanted to, you look at, the, they look at the, what, what does Italy export to the United States? What does Italy export to Canada? Uh, and then they found ways to be able to get into that business so that they could hide heroin among those shipments. And one of them was tomato paste. Another one was a marble, Italian marble. Uh, they would, uh, you know, have pallets of Italian marble, uh, and they would uh, uh, cut out a section of those pallets, and, and they would be full of heroin. Huh. So they'd ship that to the various ports on the, the East Coast, and their cohorts would pick it up, uh, and then distribute it to these pizzerias. So that's what Carmine Russo started and what he was working on, and as I read through, uh, through this, they ended up at the same time, they were watching a guy named Salvatore Catalano and Cesar Bonaventre, who, both of whom were native Sicilians, and and had come over, brought over by Carmine Galente, really, and, you know, they called them the Zips in the United States, the city and born people. And, and they almost had like a little crew that was connected to Galente and the Bonanno family. But they started watching them, and, and what was really interesting, and you know how this works, somebody from, I think it was Philadelphia, DEA had a case going, and they were looking at pen registers, and they were they were getting ready to buy a kilo of heroin from a guy, and, and they're on his pen register... There was a, a call back to this Catalano's uh, a payphone right outside of Catalano's place that they had been watching. It's like, uh oh, okay, now we got it. Now we put it together now, and, and it just it took off from there. They really uh, and mushroom mushroom yeah, from there. Mushroom from there because the connection between the Sicilian mafia guys in the states, we were pretty much on top of the the Costa Nostra family, Bonanno family, or five families in New York. Yeah. Yeah, they did do that. They they ended up bringing it all down. If if I remember right, they uh, intercepted a phone call, and it was always in Sicilian. They, I believe, they even imported some Sicilian uh, policemen, native speakers, to help with these wiretaps. Is that right? Oh yeah, 
Oh yeah, absolutely. We, we, uh, the cooperation between the prior police and the FBI was outstanding. Uh, we did things that had never been done before. I personally brought over a half dozen Italian police officers to Chicago uh, and, and some to other parts of the, of the country uh, to sit on our wiretap because the Sicilian mafia guys, they sent over were the ones that we were listening to and our, our Italian-speaking agents didn't understand the decision. Yeah, yeah. We had to bring these guys in to help us out. And likewise, we sent people over, like Carmine Russo, when I was there, we were out of shade to come over and assist us with some cases over there. So the cooperation level uh, blossomed and became a very positive, positive force against the, the two groups, the Sicilian Mafia and the LCN, uh, operating in this new venture of drug trafficking. And they brought they brought that whole thing down at uh, one of those uh, Sicilian speakers on the wiretap caught Badalamente's uh, nephew on the phone, and, and they were talking about meeting somewhere in Spain, and, and they had not been able to find you know the, the overall boss, Badalamente. And, and when they figured that out from that wiretap, they, they popped them both over in Spain and got him extradited back to the United States. And, and he ended up uh, getting uh, basically a life sentence for him because he died in the penitentiary. Yeah, there was a lot of a lot of those. The, the wiretaps were invaluable because we were able to uh, discover the, the links between uh, these groups. I don't know, like they were in Brazil, they were in Canada, yeah, they were in Australia. Uh, they were just everywhere, everywhere because drug trafficking is something that's very profitable to probably every part of the world. Yeah, it 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 was an amazing story that that whole pizza canal. That was the biggest. Uh, I think that was the biggest trial ever. It lasted almost a year, but but a bigger trial and and would be the uh, the big trial over in in Sicily. Now, did you go down there and watch any of that, or uh, tell us a little bit about that great big trial when they brought everybody down in Sicily? No, I didn't. I didn't get down to watch that, but it was everything you described was the biggest trial they've ever had. In fact, in preparation for it, they converted uh, a military armory. A huge, huge building. It made, because they had about 500 subjects, defendants. They were charged, and they were being tried all at one time. One at a time, but they were all in, in, incarcerated inside this armory in view of the, 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 the judges and the jury, the prosecutors. Uh, and you can imagine the bedlam that took place. But whenever somebody was speaking, they would start making noise, and clanging their cups against the bars mm. of the cells. Uh, it was a heck of an ordeal. But anyway, it lasted for months, and they were probably around 350 to 400 individuals were convicted in that case. Not without the help of this Tommaso Bruschetta. I'd, I'd like to talk about him just a little bit. Uh, folks, and there's, there's got a movie coming out called The Traitor, and I haven't seen it released yet. It's going to be the story of him. It's, uh, I believe it's an Italian or Spanish-made movie with subtitles. And then there's a, a documentary called Our Godfather. It's a really well-done documentary. They got a lot of uh, look like help from relatives of his because they had a lot of home movies when he was uh, in, in witness protection and hiding after he started uh, testifying, but he he was a longtime Sicilian mob kid. He grew up in the mob over there and, and would, had been part of it, was was close to this uh, Gaetano Balamente. He probably had something to do with helping to set that whole pizza connection thing up. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Mafia of was key to the success both in Italy and in New York. He, 
uh, Southern District of New York. Rudy Giuliani was at, at that time of this United States attorney, and they prosecuted the Pizza Connection case in New York. Bruschetta, who was a member of the Sicilian Mafia, he was part of the Portanova family in Palermo. He joined the mob in his early 20s. He became the foreman for Judge Falcone. By 1984, he was, he was brought back in because he was... A, I believe he was arrested uh, in either in the States or in Brazil, one or two, probably Brazil. Yeah, he, I think it was Brazil. He, he, he lived in Canada, he lived in the States, and he lived in Brazil, of course, he lived in, in Europe. He had a family in Sicily as well, he had children in Sicily. But he married a gal from Brazil, and while he was there, the Italians extradited him in connection with a murder that he had years before in Sicily. When he got back to Rome, but between the time that he was arrested in Sicily, in, in Palermo, rather, in, in, in Brazil, and got was extradited, I believe two of his sons in Sicily were killed. They disappeared. They never found them. Yeah. Uh, and he knew that it was probably a, a warning to him to be quiet. So when he got back to Italy and was interviewed by uh, Judge Falcone, he cooperated. He saw that as an opportunity to get even with these guys and uh, killed his family. He had a lot of information available. In fact, he was one of the participants in the, in the famous 1957 meeting, not the one in, in Appalachia, New York. That was a, a previous one, but it was a similar meeting to the Appalachian meeting at Palermo between the U.S. LCM bosses and Sicilian godfathers. Uh, one of the notable attendees was Lucky Luciano and Joe Bonanno. They were both there. Uh, at this meeting, they formed the cupola which is, is a sort of a, uh, a commission, the Sicilian Commission, that more or less oversaw Sicilian mafia activities and organized crime activity worldwide. Lucetta was in attendance of that, so he had an idea of uh, the, the stature that he had. Information offered uh, to Judge Falcone. I'm sure he did. According to that documentary, he ended up living out his life uh, with his family, that Brazilian lady and, and those kids over here. And looked like in those home movies is down in Florida, somewhere where it was warm all the time, it, it looked like, and died of natural well, causes. He went into witness protection program, but uh, they, they had uh, the first maxi trial, a mini maxi trial, was held in Palermo back in the 80s, I think they used something like that. Uh, and, and because of his cooperation, he didn't feel comfortable anywhere in Italy. He, you know, they're going to get to me in Italy. I know how they work. I know the corruption, the level of corruption here. It's the, so they arranged to put him in the witness protection program in the States. Uh-huh. So Shedder came to the States for, it was, uh, in, in the witness protection program. And then he testified at the uh, Peace of Connection trial while he was here. Cool. Okay, Lee, this, is, this has been great. I think that's uh, that's all the, really the questions I've got. Uh, do you have anything you want to add? No, it's, it's just an ongoing thing. The, 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 the organized crime has changed greatly since then. The Sicilian Mafia, and, as well as Rosa Nostra, has dealt some severe blows. And the younger generation has, has just been denied the opportunity to get into this uh, heavy, profitable activity like drug trafficking. You know, the, the Mexican cartels have taken over a lot of that. It's not as lucrative as it used to be, and, and because of that, the, the uh, Italian organized crime, the city organized crime, uh, it's just not as much of a threat today as it was. They, they brought it to well, the white-collar crime operation more than, than criminal uh, organized crime. Really, you know, and, and 
I, I've often had people when I worked the intelligence unit, I'd have some of these other policemen and say, well, you know, what, what are they? They don't, they don't really do anything. But what they don't understand is the corruption that they bring and are constantly trying to bribe politicians and, and get work into the court system so they can get whatever they want. And when you just let them go, that's what they're going to do. And, and so you, you got to, uh, stay after them all the time and and you know they're not any they lost all their sources of, of income you know and, and what's interesting uh comment on this lee is now uh sports gambling is legal uh loan sharking is basically legal in payday loan places and title loan places so it's taking away all their their sources of income absolutely absolutely uh, and i'm not saying that that's a good thing if these things are legal uh but nonetheless it, it has had an impact on their under marketability and services. Yeah, I think there'll always be a need for a, for a local bookie, and there'll always be some businessman that wants to borrow money, and and, and when he gets in hock, you know, where that leads down to them doing a bust out or something on their business. But so it'll always be a little bit of a market there. But so much of it's gone, and you know what we see in Kansas City is is it's basically dead. I mean, there's just there's not enough going on. It doesn't seem to me like to shake a stick at. The challenge, I think, is for, for the future generations is to, is to identify what areas they have moved into. We know that they're still active in the labor racketeering, uh, but they, they move. a lot of these younger kids uh, went to college, yeah. uh, they went to law school, uh, they, they're into the financial markets, uh, and, and you know, they're going to apply their uh, expertise in, in, uh, of corruption in those areas as well. So. I think that's the challenge of the future generations to try to identify exactly what they're up to today. I did have a guy that, that acted like he was in the know that told me, he said, you know, you guys, th- he thinks I'm still a cop, I guess. He said, you guys need to look into some of this Internet fraud stuff, too, when it, when it comes to, to oh, the no. mob. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all. In fact, there is so much money being defrauded out of people through Internet fraud. Uh, and most of it is uh, coming from from overseas, at least at the headquarters. So we, we need to find out if there's any links there to, to organized crime. It's, it's rampant. You can't imagine how many cases the Bureau has these days of people uh, being uh, defrauded out of big bucks, blackmailed. They'll take over a, a law firm's uh, website and, and computer, and now they have all their files. So, yeah, you want to get those files back, it costs you $5 million. Yeah. Uh, it, it, that's heavy stuff. Yeah, that is. Well, all right, Lee, I'll I'll let you get back to your <laughs> self-isolation. You can go out work in the yard, but it's probably uh, a little bit cool to do that still in Chicago. Uh, it's too well, cool I, today. Today it's probably it's, it's the low 40s right now. Is it? So it's not, the, not a good idea to go out to the yard work. No, it's it's cold here too. All right, Lee, it's really been great to talk to you again, and uh, I'll, I'll pass along your your uh, uh, wishes to your, uh, good wishes to uh, some of your old friends here, Bobby Arnold, Larry Wisher, and Harold Nichols, and Billy Trollope. I, I see them every once in a while, and and I'll let them know to be sure and listen to this. All right, all right, thanks, Lee. Bye. Okay, wiretappers, that was uh, Lee Flossie. Retired FBI agent with a really interesting insights and into the Pizza Connection case. He was part of it on from the Italian side and, and helped coordinate all that. So you'll know now how how they brought that down. That that took a uh, really a worldwide effort to to bring that case 
down. It was uh, it was quite a it was a hell of a case. And and again, that Carmine Russo, uh, I wish he talked a little bit more about him, but that's all right. He's uh, maybe I can get hold of the guy one of these days. I'll, I'll make a run on that. Uh, I'll maybe call Lee back and see if he's maintained contact with him if he's still around. That would be an interesting interview. So now I need to get on to my public service announcement so you guys can get on with your lives. If you're a veteran and you believe you have problems that might be from PTSD that's connected to your service, call the local vet center. Most every large city has a, a just a vet center. Uh, you probably already know where it is, uh, or your local VA hospital if if you're not in a city with a vet center. And a lot of guys have uh, already you know had some kind of treatment with the VA hospital, and they know how to get hold of them. And if you don't have that, or you don't know how to get hold of it, you don't really want to. There's a national hotline. Now, this is ran by a private company, it looks to me like. It's 1-800-273-8255, and they say press 1 if you're a veteran. Or the VA has a website that has a lot of resources on it. It's www.ptsd.va.gov. And and for spouses or loved ones of somebody that may have the problem that doesn't really think they do or doesn't really want to do anything and you want some some resources to go to them with or to help you with, why, take a look at that website. They've got a lot of stuff. Now, don't forget to hit me up on the Venmo app. Buy me a cup of coffee. It's uh, Gangland Wire. Don't forget, I've got a new movie out there, Brothers Against Brothers, The Sabella Spiro War, and I've got my old movie, Gangland Wire. Uh, both of those are available for $1.99 as a digital rental from Amazon, Amazon Prime. You don't have to have Prime to do that, uh, to rent it. got my book, Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Kindle version, because I've linked a lot of the wiretaps to that, so you can hear the words out of the mouths of the men who actually were scheming to uh, corrupt politicians in Las Vegas, were scheming to uh, skim money out of casinos, and, and a variety of other criminal acts. And then I have the Kansas City Mob Tour app. For a small price, you can take a mob tour of Kansas City from wherever you are. You don't have to go out and if you're self-isolating or self-quarantining or whatever. We're, we're about, we're just started on this in Kansas City. Uh, we will see what happens uh, over the next couple of weeks. It's going to peak out probably in a couple of weeks, and people are kind of freaking right now. I'll be glad when the, when the panic starts dying down a little bit and it might be toilet paper back on the shelves now. I didn't really need any toilet paper, and this started in about two weeks, maybe. I'll probably need some. I already had plenty of groceries. I kind of stocked up a little bit. I didn't go big time, but I got enough to last me another couple weeks without even going out if I want to. So, good evening, wiretappers. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.